Four chapters. Let's start with chapter 21. Um, I'm going to single out verses 22 through 27, first of all. all right? uh, let me pull out my Torah here and read those verses. Chapter 21, verses 22 <clears throat> through 27. Okay. Let's see. 22 through 27. Here we are. Um, you know what? I think I've got the wrong... Oops, there we are. I'm in the wrong chapter. That helps, doesn't it? Here we go. Chapter 21, verses 22 through 27. Quote, If people are fighting with each other and happen to hurt a... a okay, yes. If people are fighting <clears throat> with each other and happen to hurt a pregnant woman so badly that her unborn child dies, then even if no other harm follows, he must be fined. He must pay the amount set by the woman's husband and confirmed by judges. 23. But if any harm follows then you are to give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. Verse 26. If a person hits his male or female slave's eye and destroys it, he must let him go free in compensation for his eye. If he knocks out his male or female slave's tooth, he must let him go free in compensation for his tooth. <clears throat> End quote. Sorry I keep uh, um, uh, uh, clearing my throat there. I'm not sure what's... But the deal is here, I just my throat's really dry. Um, let's comment on these verses, all right? Eye for an eye is what we're looking at. Um, and we've heard this term before. In fact, it's the use of Yeshua, and that's where I'm going to go with my comment. Uh, these verses speak about restitution in the event of accidental injury. Now, we're familiar with the saying, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We remember that our Lord Yeshua made a comment about this in the Brit uh, the Apostolic Scriptures, the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Um, we often feel that his comments reflect the right enacted by this particular Torah passage, that is, to go out and take, quote, revenge on the individual who took our eye or tooth. In other words, we feel that Yeshua is commenting on um, the right or the um, wronging of enacting revenge. Um, in Yeshua's estimation, we suppose, Revenge is not the correct course of action, and instead we should seek to forgive our brother, because that's how the um, his his midrash is, or I'm sorry, his uh, his halacha is worded. Um, you've heard, but you've, I'm a paraphrase, okay? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, um, you know, forgive your brother, something to that effect. <clears throat> Actually, however, these verses of our current parasha establish justice in such a situation. It's not really even talking about revenge per se. Um, for instance, if indeed your brother's accidentally, uh, your brother accidentally or maliciously takes your eye or tooth, and of course it says eye or tooth, but the, the sages are correct in pointing out that the word eye in there, the word tooth there, are establish a general principle. Um, it may not, in fact, be that your brother's literal eye or his literal tooth. Rather, these are stand-ins for his his material possessions um, or his precious commodities. After all, our, our our eyes and our teeth are precious to us, right? So, if your brother accidentally damages one of your precious commodities, then the ruling says that you are entitled, you, the, uh, um, you, the, the damaged party, you are entitled to an equal share of recompense, but not more. It limits the damage that can be imposed, um, or the recompense that can be imposed from your brother. This ruling sets the order so that greed and unforgiveness don't become rife in the community. So you see, it's not really about 
um, so much uh, uh, forgiveness and exacting revenge. Now, I, I, I'm not saying that what Yeshua gave us is not valid. Don't don't mistake what I'm saying. Turning the other cheek and allowing your brother to go free would probably be the best way to see uh, the damage through to its end. Not seeking a legal a lawsuit uh, so that you can get paid back that for which you lost. Um, it would be best not to take your brother to court. In fact, to be sure, it is forbidden from the Torah for, uh, for believers to take each other to court or brother to take brother to court, um, especially among believers. But at any rate, uh, the, the ruling here is given so that the courts are given some sort of guideline. Um, my brother, if, if he takes my eye, I'm not to exact both eyes from him. you see what I mean there? Um, uh, Yeshua realizes that the person wronged, in, let, in this case, let's say me, I'm the wronged party. My brother pokes out my eye. Um, Yeshua realizing that the person wronged his own an eye for his compensation um, challenges his audience to seek forgiveness instead of compensation. Why should we be so greedy especially among brothers, that I've got to get back that which my brother took. Yeshua is challenging me as a brother to look to the brother that wronged me and say, you know what? I hurt, but I forgive you. That's what Yeshua is trying to say here. He does not contradict the Torah here. Rather, the Torah gives us the legal limitation for the recompense However, Yeshua goes to the heart of the matter and says, you know what, even though it's owed you, Ariel, even though your brother took out your eye, why don't you just forgive him anyway? And just go your separate way. Well, don't go separate ways. Um, don't take him to court. Okay, That's what Yeshua would, would challenge me to do. So rather than cha- uh, contradicting the Torah, our Master establishes the Torah's true intent. Okay, I hope you see that now. Chapter 22 has verses 21 through 27, of which I was looking at earlier, mistakenly thinking that it was chapter 21. Um, let me read verses 21 through 27, because then I want to comment on them. Quote, um, You must neither wrong nor oppress a foreigner living among you, for you yourselves were foreigners in the land of Egypt. You are not to abuse any widow or orphan. If you do abuse them in any way, and they cry to me, I will certainly hear their cr- uh, heed their cry. My anger will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. Your own wives will be widows, and your own children will be fatherless. It goes on to say, verse 24 and 25, If you loan money to one of my people who is poor, you are not to deal with him as you would a creditor, and you are not to charge him interest. Wow, that's pretty good. Our bankers need to read this first, don't they? Um, uh, I'm sorry. Um, if you take your neighbor's coat as collateral, you are to return it to him by sundown because it is his only garment he needs it to wrap his body what else does he have in which to sleep moreover if he cries out to me i will listen because i am compassionate End quote now these are great verses what would i like to comment on well for first first of all these verses show us the compassionate heart that god has towards those the less fortunate in our community the the uh the disenfranchised or the the um people who find themselves in a hard place um, and, and you know what? Every community has them. Or as Yeshua would put it, you know, you're, the poor are always going to be with you. That is just an economic and social reality of every community. You will always have people who are um, better off and those who are not so well off. Um, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the poor have always held a special place in our heavenly Abba's eyes. And as such, they should hold a special place 
in our eyes. We are challenged here in these passages, in these verses, with establishing a communal system that will meet their needs, not look the other way. Indeed, Yeshua also challenged us when he stated that the poor would always be with us, just like I said. What this means is that we should never degenerate. Our community should never be characterized by a community that um, ceases to care for these special citizens in our community. This is not just a call for civil fortitude. Okay, This is to be an extension of the genuine heart of justice and mercy that our Father has demonstrated on our behalf. Did you notice that in the verse? It says, You must neither wrong nor oppress a foreigner living, living among you, for you yourselves were foreigners in the land of Egypt, and God's the one that came in and took care of us. So we are to imitate God and take care of the uh, less than fortunate in our community. In fact, um, as far as Yeshua goes in another parable, he also instructed us that our treatment of the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the poor actually goes so far as to demonstrate our genuine commitment to the Master Himself. How we treat the poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger is in direct relation to how we view and treat the Master. It's as if He is represented by these people groups. You could read Matthew um, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46 to see where I'm going with that, okay? Let's move on. Chapter 23, verses 10 through 33. Now, I'm not going to read the entire um, set of verses there, all 13 or so verses, inst- uh, or 20, 23 verses. Instead, I just want to, uh, let's see. Let me look at the gist of it. Okay. Let me just give you the commentary instead of reading the passages. You can go back and read the verses for yourself. What they do um, go on to teach, and I'm going to be a little longer on this one, what they go on to teach is that, uh, well, f- well, first of all, they form one complete literary unit, one um, um, unit of instructions that center on provision and blessing during the resting years that the land is to experience. God let them know or told them in verse 10, Six years you are to sow your land with seed together in the harvest, but the seventh year you are to let it, ri- uh, let it rest and lie fallow. This, this um, less letting the land rest during the um, seventh uh, year um, is known as the uh, Shemitah. Uh, the laws of Shemitah we will deal with a little later on, but we're just getting a glimpse of them right here. Um, at any rate, what ends up happening is um, during the resting years, while the land is experiencing a Shabbat, of course, um, a, uh, a break from sowing, uh, working, you know, when the farmer plants seed, and um, and then extracts the uh, harvest from the the ground. The ground itself, and we know this agriculturally, the ground itself loses some of the nutrients of sorts. And so it's best if we rotate the crops, so to say. Um, to an extent, that's what farmers are doing when they do rotate their crops. They're they are aware of the uh, um, uh, what would you say the the stress that it places on the land to continually work the land, and in a sense, God, um, having spoken in the chapter prior about not working, um, I'm sorry, not ignoring the needs of the um, those in the community who are less than, uh, less than fortunate, now He turns His aff- attention on the land itself, 
it's almost as if the land has feelings. And, and, and I guess in a kind of a midrashic way it does. At any rate, um, Hashem tells the people to grant unto the land a time period of rest, a Shabbat, so that the soil can replenish itself and continue to provide a healthy crop in the eighth year after its rest. So for a full year it rests. Consequently, during this time of supernatural provision, Hashem knew that, due to human nature, some people would be inclined to doubt the providence of His mighty hand, and they would be tempted to imitate whom? The pagan society around them. Because even though Israel occupied the land, there have always been people, groups, with within, um, I, I, could, I, I guess you could say, within um, a community uh, 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 reach um, of Israel. I mean, it's not like they're dwelling out in the middle of the desert and, and there's no one around them. There are people groups around them. And in fact, if you read the book of Judges, where the people are, were commanded to go in and displace the, um, the inhabitants of the land, you know, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the, the Amorites, and all those, people, all those other ites. Well, the people did not completely displace the people of Israel. Each tribe did not completely displace the, the former occupants. And as a result, you ended up with um, the children of Israel living in very close proximity to uh, the pagan nations around them. And so we can see how this prohibition here in Exodus chapter 23 seems to um, uh, shape up as we, as we look forward into the uh, history of Israel. At any rate, um, they would be tim- imitated, uh, I'm sorry, tempted to imitate the pagan groups around them. And in doing so, the entire section is really given over to Hashem assuring the people of His, pre- of his provision and blessing, despite the fact that no crops will be sown for an entire year. Because again, human nature would kick in and doubt would begin to creep in. It happens with people all over, and especially, you know what, it happens to Christians as well. Um, it has been discovered, as we read down to these pages, and also as we um, corroborate the, the Torah information with history, it has been discovered that some of the pagan practices... Um, back then and I think today as well. I don't know how well they're documented today, but um, we've got some of the information from previous times. I don't have the sources here in front of me. Just trust me on this. I'll speak more of it in a later parasha, okay? But at any rate, it's been discovered that some of the pagan practices involved worship of the elements of the earth. Pagan worship predates um, true... Uh, well, how do I how do I know put this? I don't want to say the error came first, but what I'm trying to say is that before the system of Torah was set up as we're seeing it now, pagan forms of worship were obviously ex- in existence. And so um, this worship that we can now read about in history books took the form of offering sacrifices to the gods of the sun, the earth, the wind, um, the sky, the rain, and consequently the produce of earth, both, cro- both crops and beasts. Man, in his depravity, worships the created instead of the creator. This is why ancient uh, pagan civilizations um, depicted such adoration for these particular objects, I believe, on their wall paintings and such. It was during this time, during the time of ancient Israel, that an ancient Canaanite uh, Canaanite practice involving a beast of burden, such as an ox or a cow, or a goat, a gadi, as the Hebrew word would suggest, um, was killed, and its body was seethed, or boiled, or stewed, or brought to 
maturity in, in other words, it was cooked in its own mother's milk. And the milk was a symbol of the animal's fertility. Um, this ceremony, as history goes on to record, invoked the powers of both the agricultural gods as well as the fertility gods. So you had both deities um, being brought into play with this ancient ritual. Um, the pagans believed that the sacrificial ceremony would appease these gods into blessing them with wealth, with offspring, and, of course, abundant crops. And, of course, now you take this pagan ritual and enter the people of Israel. What is this going to look like to them, and how are they, the people of Israel, going to interpret and interact with these other people groups? Should they completely run the other direction, abstain, look away, or... You know what's going to happen, don't you? Yeah, I bet you've guessed. They're going to get curious, and they're going to say, you know what? We don't have anything. Here we are, we're letting our ground lie fallow, we're resting like God says, but there's no crops. And you know what? we got to eat, we got to live. Let's just go look over the fence at our neighbor and see how he's doing. And they look over the fence, and what's his neighbor doing? His neighbor Canaanite. His neighbor Canaanite's doing pretty well. He's got crops, he's got uh, uh, a food, um, he's got stores. He's got animals, and the ancient Israelite might be um, inclined to say, you know, how'd you get all that stuff? And the ancient Canaanite says, well, funny you ask. We got this with this uh, uh, a ritual whereby we um, invoke the agricultural gods, the gods of Mother Earth and the ground and and the water and the, and and such, and 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 this is how this comes to be. And you can see how as Am Israel observed these foreign practices, that it would be tempting during their own time of doing without to be enticed into, what, experimenting with this pagan ritual? I mean, what's the harm, right? You know, a little mixing and matching of gods. This is why Hashem forbids them, in verse 19 of chapter 23, from imitating this practice. Let me read the passage, the Pasuk. Uh, Exodus 23:19 says, quote, You are to bring the best firstfruits of your land into the house of Adonai your God, and then the next appendix reads, quote, you are not to boil a young animal in its mother's milk. Some of your translations say a goat, uh, because the Hebrew word gedi is a young animal, but more often the young animal that was more easily disposed of was the um, the young male goat. The female goat was, was uh, a more precious commodity, and the younger male goat was a more easily expendable. So, um, that's why Hashem forbids them in verse 19 not to imitate the practice of boiling the young animal in the milk of the mother. And by the way, the verse says emo, its mother. Okay, I believe that it is a, um, a prescription that Hashem knew about, um, a pagan rite, right, uh, uh, down to the details of the pagan rite. And Israel was expressly forbidden not to imitate this. Now, unless we establish the context of this seemingly odd commandment, this odd mitzvah, we are left to speculate as to what it means. Because oftentimes we're seeing the prohibition, but we're not knowing exactly what sparked the prohibition. Um, history has helped us out, and the rabbis have also helped. But even more importantly than that, the Holy Spirit can help us understand uh, what this passage means. Now, unfortunately, in my opinion, the sages of old, without the proper guidance of the Ruach HaKodesh, that is to say, the rabbinic Judaism who 
corporately and knowingly rejected the offer that Yeshua presented to them in the first century and even before then, um, they 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 look at this verse and the and the other three the other two places where this verse this prohibition is found. This verse is this prohibition not to boil a kid in his mother's milk is going to show up again in Exodus and then it's going to show up one more time in Deuteronomy chapter fourteen. But um, what happens is because the verse seems ambiguous and kind of out of place, they 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 um, they have to speculate as to what it means and eventually come up with a ruling which forms the basis of their halakha that prohibits consuming milk and meat and even prohibiting um, deriving any benefit from the mixture or prohibiting uh, cooking it. So you get three um, prohibitions out of this uh, passage itself. You get you're prohibited from eating, from cooking, and from uh, deriving benefit from the uh, mixture itself. Well, not only did um, the the people, as we go back to our Torah, not only did the people end up engaging in gross idolatrous practices, we know this is true, that ancient Israel was characterized by idolatry, at least up until the um, Babylonian exile. And then after coming out of the exile, um, you could say that they were kind of uh, weaned off of their idolatry, that they were finally broken of that um, proclivity. But until then, um, not only did they engage in gross idolatrous practices, um, I mean, of, of, of which this was probably one of the cases, our sages completely, in my opinion, misunderstood the instructions and turned the mitzvah into some nonsense involving the prohibition of eating milk and meat products in the same meal. There, I've said it. I know I'm going to get in trouble for this because I've got some friends, um, many of them close, I, sh- I might add, um, and and some of the messianic. Um, in fact, one of my friends is a, is a rabbi friend of mine who's a messianic, and uh, he holds to the rabbinic interpretation of the prohibition of milk and meat. And you know what? I respect his viewpoint and his opinion to um, hold his personal viewpoint that this passage is prohibiting milk and meat, and the, and the uh, prohibiting deriving any benefit from it, prohibiting uh, cooking them together. However. Um, I hold no such opinion. And therefore, I respect his, his opinion and his difference. I simply disagree with his application that this should be applied on a community level. I think if he wants to practice this opinion, uh, he best keep it to himself. Um, but until we, the Messianic community, can arrive at a um, unified agreement uh, on this ruling of, of separating milk from meat, I don't think it is something that we should enforce on the group at large. Um, there, I've said it. So if you have questions about that, go ahead and write to me. Um, I will not tell you who the rabbi is. Um, but again, you've heard my opinion. Now, this conclusion of theirs, of the rabbis, uh, in my opinion, is completely out of context with the surrounding verses. In other words, understood correctly, I want to emphatically state that I believe that it is not forbidden to eat milk and meat together. It is not forbidden to cook them together, nor is it forbidden to derive the benefits from the mixtures. Um, in fact, to prove my point, I like to cite the passage found in a previous portion in Genesis chapter 18, verses 1-8, through 8, where according to my um, uh, modest understanding of the text there, Abraham serves milk and meat products to, his, to the three guests who show up 
uh, as he sits by the Oaks of Mamre. I'm holding in my hands here, just before I go on, I'm holding in my hands here a printout from the um, uh, uh, Babylonian Talmud that I have a copy of on CD-ROM. Um, it's the Newsner edition. Jacob Newsner put it together. Very good uh, 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 resource, I might add. And what I did is I printed um, a few pages from Tractate um, Hulin, which is where we have all the information regarding, well, most of the information, the bulk of it, regarding the milk meat uh, questionings. And this, uh, gosh, it's Tractate Hulin, and I think it starts at um, Folio 115B, uh, maybe 115A. Um, at any rate, I, I printed out just like 10 pages worth of Mishnah and Gemara, uh, rabbinic uh, question and answer and logic and deduction and such about this. And I can tell you, it's lengthy. Uh, if you'd like some of this information, go ahead and again uh, write to me and maybe I can put this in a little document, just this piece right here, and, and email it to you or something like that. But you'd be amazed if you want to read it for yourself the going round and round over what we need, what we should do with this particular verse and the other two verses that we find in the Torah, okay? Maybe you can come to your own conclusion about the milk and meat. Maybe you'll differ, differ from me. I, I, I'm not... Uh, 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 I'm not... Um, I'm not uncomfortable with disagreement. Um, rather, I'd rather we had um, some more unity, especially in the Messianic community. But until then... Um, let us focus on the majors and not strain at the minors, okay? That which God has told us to eat and not to eat, such as in the Leviticus 11 list and the Deuteronomy 14 list, that which is unambiguous to the, to the average reader, let's focus on that. And these other verses that crop up, these three passages, uh, the milk and meat, uh, the boiling kid and smother's milk, I say let's put that on back burner, no pun intended, let's put that on back burner until we can um, more fully understand exactly what the passage is trying to teach us. All right, let's move on. Chapter twenty-four. Our portion concludes with Moshe, Aharon, and the elders actually having a meal with the God of Israel. Imagine that. In this magnificent revelation, they actually see a form. Now remember, God is invisible. And he clearly explains to Israel that um, you, you've seen no form. And yet here, they see um, the feet and something. In fact, let me pull a few verses out of chapter 24. We've got uh, chapter 24, verse 9. Quote, Moshe, Aharon, Nadav, Avihu, and the 70 elders, uh, the 70 of the leaders went up. Went up to the mountain, that is. And they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a sapphire stone pavement as clear as the sky itself. He did not reach out his hand against these notables of Israel. On the contrary, they saw God even as they were eating and drinking. And it talks about his feet there, right? Interesting. Um, present during this meal is the presence of the atoning blood the splash that was splashed upon all the articles of the covenant, including, I might add, the people themselves. Now, what are we to make of all this imagery? We've got God, we've got food, we've got blood, we've got leaders. What's going on? Um, as we've read in other places in the Torah, the God of the universe is invisible. He cannot be seen. In fact, the book of, I believe it's, um, is it Second Timothy or Second Peter? I don't know the reference off the top of my head, and I don't have my concordance handy, where it talks about how that God cannot be seen. 
So what are we? To, what are the people seeing? <laughs> you know, it, 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 obviously the text says they saw God, and um, we have another verse in the book of John, chapter one, where John says, "No man has seen God at any time." Well, allow me to use material from one of my Haftarah commentaries to uh, comment on what I believe is taking place. All right, no man has seen the fullness of Hashem at any time and lived to tell about it, despite what some passages seem to be saying. We have to understand what the Torah is telling us and what it is teaching us. Yet, this is one of those exceptional moments when Hashem actually comes very close to revealing His complete glorious nature to His created subjects. We're talking about a theophany. What is actually taking place here, as well as many other times when frail man encounters the supernatural, is that our senses detect exactly what Hashem allows them to detect and record. Okay, This encounter is then imprinted upon our conscience in such a way as to cause us to proclaim, I've seen the Lord. That's what happens. And that's the way God um, designs it to happen. Uh, we see God, but yet we don't see God. We see what God wants us to see. <laughs> okay, um, But again, according to the Torah, our God is invisible and cannot be seen. And yet, our, our experience registers the truth that we've seen God. What did Moshe actually see and record? Now, Moshe wrote the verse and it says, they saw God. So, Moshe records that he saw God, but of course, God can't be seen. So, God's in control of the experience. I want to offer an explanation that's somewhat subjective, yet it's based on Scripture. Okay, It's my own explanation of what is going on in situations like this one. I'm going to use um, a tool called Midrash, which is kind of like a homiletic explanation of the text to prove my point. All right, 